Please turn with me in God's holy word to 1 Corinthians chapter 13, 13th chapter of Paul's letter to the church of God in Corinth, an ancient Greek city. We will be resuming looking at Paul's teaching about the nature and the fruit of love. There are some portions of scripture that can tend to be a little harder to plow through, a little more abstract perhaps, a little harder to immediately apply to ourselves, but I hope that you're finding this chapter to not be like that. I've intentionally slowed down because this chapter contains some of the most immediately practical, indeed searching verses in all of scripture. And this passage on love, as we are seeing, is not love in some sort of like Walt Disney fairy tale kind of love that's fluffy and warm and gooey and just sentimental cotton candy, as if it's simply angelic, ethereal platitudes divorced from real life. I hope that you're able to see within yourselves, within these pages, the presence or the absence of these fruits of love. But even more importantly, I hope that through these sermons, you're able to see all of the fruit of love in our Savior, Jesus Christ. And so with with us being able to see more of Christ, the more our hearts will be warmed towards him and the more we'll want to be like him. Indeed, this, 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 this chapter is about taking love and examining it from every facet. And in doing so, we're really seeing different sides of Christ, different ways that he has demonstrated his love for his people. And so before we go any further, let's read our text. I'm going to read the whole chapter again. This is God's word for us this evening. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but I have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to move mountains, but I have not love, I'm nothing. If I give away all that I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but I have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. For now in part, then I shall know fully even as I have been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide, these three. But the greatest of these is love. This is God's word for us. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would make us a loving people, that you would reveal to us the things in our lives that are impeding our growth in these areas, that you would give us the resolve and the effectiveness, that you would by the power of the Holy Spirit, help us to overcome these, to crucify, to put to death the deeds of the flesh so that we might grow in righteousness. Help us to do this by loving Christ more. In his name we pray. 
Amen. Last time we looked at the beginning of verse 5, really one word. Love is not rude. A proud man, as we said, will not be lovingly considerate, but it will instead be rude. But Christ, the perfectly considerate and loving Savior, was in his humanity completely humble. And his humility drove him to consider the interest of others ahead of himself. And tonight, we'll move on to see three more fruit of pride, three more fruit that I think will be produced, that Paul tells us will be produced by a soul lacking in love. And when I began the next portion, studying of the next portion in verse 5, I thought these were three kind of distinct fruit, but as I studied it more, I saw a connection to them, which I hope to make explicit as we go through this sermon. But the remainder of verse 5 teaches us that love does not insist on its own way, it is not irritable or resentful. And we'll look at each of those in turn. First, love does not insist on its own way, which is how the ESV renders it. Literally, it is love does not seek its own. And we have to supply the object. We have to use the context. Doesn't seek its own interests, doesn't seek its own things, doesn't seek its own way. But I think the, the meaning is clear enough to us. Love is interested in self. And the point for us to see the opposite, that pride is selfish. The unloving person is egocentric. He is self-absorbed. Augustine uses language of man being curved in on himself, where he only sees and only is concerned about his own. He's like Narcissus in Greek mythology, who has fallen in love with an image of himself. We're in love with ourselves. Self-love, self-idolatry, and it's destructive. At every level of society, Richard Linsky, a commentator from a long time ago, uh, wrote this about the impact of selfishness. He said, selfishness lies at the root of a thousand evils and sins in the world and in the church. Between rich and poor, between capital and labor, between nation and nation, man and man, church member and church member. And then he says this, if you could cure selfishness, you would replant a Garden of Eden. Selfishness is destructive at every level of society and within every relationship. And we know this from our own lives. Marriages get icy cold when both partners are concerned with only their wants. Children bicker and fight when they're only concerned about their desires and the toy that they want the most. Churches grow fragile and fractured when members are concerned only with their rights and their preferences. We see that in our own hearts, don't we? Pride leads us to believe that our plan is the best plan. We have the solution, and it's very clear to us. We don't have time to listen to everybody else's proposal because I've already solved all of your problems, let me tell you. Why should we even listen to someone else's opinion? We insist on our own way. We know how all the money should be spent, how the leadership should be doing their job, how the parents should be parenting. We know how everybody else should operate. And further, because my knowledge is so complete and my reasoning unassailable, we can grow increasingly insistent. Even if the exact fruit of our insistency doesn't look the same in every person, pride bears many different kinds of fruit. Sometimes we raise our voice when we insist. 
We demand. Sometimes we don't raise our voice. Some people like to use quieter, more passive-aggressive comments. Others are more direct. Some like to use sarcasm and wit. Others like to be more blatantly hostile in their tact. Some might withdraw in order to get their way, and that's manipulation. Sometimes we can domineer over others because our position is so right and they are so clearly wrong. And be sure I'm not talking about boldly and faithfully defending the truth of God revealed in Scripture. We can't be soft when we're defending God's word. I'm talking about insisting on yourself. Prideful, self-seeking, demanding your own way. I'm talking about bullying others or shaming others or demanding that others bend to my will. It is my way or the highway. That's what pride does. It makes ultimatums. And what happens when this prideful person doesn't get his or her way? What happens when a selfish person is not self-indulged? Well, that's where we get to the next fruit. Paul says love is not irritable. We might translate it, love is not easily provoked. Pride makes a man very thin-skinned and very easily agitated. Pride makes a man like a cup of water that is filled to the brim and any little flick and something spills out. Pride makes a man touchy. If the idol is me and myself, then anyone who threatens the sovereignty of my idol, me, is going to get my wrath. Or maybe, maybe I don't erupt and fly off the handle, but maybe I get cynical. Maybe I get sarcastic and snarky. We're easily provoked. Does any of this sound familiar? Have you seen it in your own hearts? I've seen it in mine more often than I care to admit, even this week. I get wrapped up in my own comfort, my own peace, my preferences, and anything that threatens my peace becomes a threat. And so I can lash out in anger, get impatient, and be irritable. Maybe your spouse isn't doing what you want them to do. They're not serving you in the way that, they, that you think that they should be, and so you get provoked. You get irritable. Maybe you get snappy towards them, or you give them the silent treatment. Maybe you get cold towards them and just want to pull away. You feel the distance between you growing. And if we let this go, this pattern then we'll see the third fruit of pride come in our lives for sure, and that is love is not resentful. A resentful person is a proud person. We might translate it as love does not keep a record of wrong. Pride keeps a record. Pride knows exactly how many times, when, and in what manner someone has sinned against me. The term Paul uses is actually from accounting. It's as if a proud, resentful person can pull out the ledger, slam it down on the desk, and go back. Oh, on this date, you made this transaction against me. And this date, you did this against me. And here was what you owe me for that. 
Pride loves a grudge. It likes to let unresolved hostility grow and grow and grow. And if they're not careful, it will fester in the darkness of our hearts and it will bear fruit, the fruit of bitterness, which is poison to your soul. We hate someone else out there because what they did to us. I have a list in my book justifying why they need to die. But instead of them dying, we drink the poison of bitterness and kill our own souls within us. That's what pride does. Some people let their resentment warp their their mind to where they can't help but be cynical. When you grow to despise somebody, it changes how you view them. You can't even recognize good when the other person does it. All you see, all that you can see, is their imperfections, their failings, and their weaknesses. That's one of the sad fruit of resentment. You can't appreciate God's grace in their lives and the good work that they do. Because all you can do is be seething in your anger and bitterness to see the negative. We'll get into more of that next week, Lord willing. You see, pride leads a person on this downward slide that I believe connects these three fruits. We get puffed up. We see ourselves and our preferences as the best way, the right way, and we demand, we seek it. We, we, we push for that. We insist on our own way, and when we don't get our way, we get irritable. We're easily provoked. People are threatening the little idol of me. And when I haven't gotten what I want, I grow resentful and bitter. And I have an ironclad record to pull out and to demonstrate how you are wrong and I am righteous. We nurture the grudge and we let it bud into the flower of full-blown hatred in our hearts. What Paul is calling us to here is is the opposite of all of this. Pride bears nasty fruit, but humble love, genuine love, also bears fruit. And the opposite fruit of all of this is meekness. Meekness is what Paul is is exhorting, a meek love. Meekness is not a word that we use very often today. It's totally misunderstood as a virtue. People often hear meekness and they think something like a spineless pushover. Somebody that can't get anything done. They're just useless. That's totally wrong. Humility, as we studied a a couple weeks ago, begins with a right understanding of who we are in relation to God. And it's only then, when we rightly perceive ourselves in relation to our Creator and our Savior, that we can bear fruit to our fellow men, one of those being meekness. I'll define meekness... um, using an an old Dutch theologian's definition that I've modified a little bit. Meekness being an even-tempered disposition of heart that flows from our union with Christ. And it consists of self-denial and love for neighbor. Meekness is an even-tempered disposition of heart flowing from union with Christ and consisting in self-denial and love for neighbor. It's from a series of books called The Christian's Reasonable Service. If anybody cares to read it, it's very good. 
we can walk through each part of that definition. Meekness is an even-tempered disposition of heart. Unlike the man or woman who is easily provoked, a meek person is even-tempered. I don't mean lifeless or lethargic or sluggish or stoic or even anti-emotional. I mean, meek person is power restrained. He's not easily provoked by the people around him. He gets angry at the right times and never the wrong times. And never for selfish reasons. A proud person is easily agitated. He's, he's impulsive and explosive. And therefore, he is a slave to whatever's going on around him. He's not in control. The people that are provoking him are actually in control. But a meek person is the one that's actually free. Because the whole world can be blowing up around him and he is fixed on God. His temper is not dictated by the people around him or by circumstances. He has self-control rather than being controlled by others. And that's because he's not controlled by the idol of himself and his own sovereignty. He's not worried about building his own little kingdom. Rather, he's confident in who Christ is. And that confidence leads to a stability of temperament, a steadiness of soul, which is not easily provoked by others. And his resistance to provocation is always grounded in his relationship to Christ. That's why I said, Meekness is an even-tempered disposition of heart flowing from union with Christ. A Christian is aware that he is reconciled to God through Christ, and all of that reconciliation is of grace. He or she has done nothing to earn it, and therefore can remain humble. Further, he has been adopted by God into his household, reconciled to the creator of the universe, promised everything that he needs for life and godliness. And if that's the case, what reason does, does he have to demand his way among men? He's not concerned with getting what he wants because he's already been given everything his soul could possibly need in Christ. One theologian described it this way, a meek person has chosen God as his portion. And he sees that everything else in the world is vanity, and he knows that no one will either speak to him or do anything to him except God wills it first. Thus, as he trusts in God, his heart can remain even-tempered and fixed. His heart is neither in turmoil nor restless, but is of a steadfast and peaceful disposition. To say it another way, he doesn't get anxious and restless to build his own kingdom because he knows that Christ has already given him a kingdom. Jesus said in Luke 22, I assign to you a kingdom as my Father has assigned to me a kingdom that you may eat and drink at my table in the kingdom. We've been given the highest privilege of all, communion with Christ in the place of his eternal rule. And if that's certainly the case, then what do we get by demanding our own way here and now? We get nothing. Moving on, meekness is an even-tempered disposition of heart flowing from union with Christ, consisting in self-denial and love for neighbor. 
Self-denial is not something that comes naturally to any of us. None of us like to give up anything. As children, we didn't like to share our toys. As adults, we don't like to share our money or our time or our energy. And that's true of us when we have a surplus. But we certainly don't like to give up things that cost us and make us go without. I don't like to get up early to go help somebody. I like my sleep. I don't like to go without it. My flesh doesn't like to spend long times in prayer laboring for the good of others. It's costly. I don't want to give money back to the Lord because that means I can't spend it on things that I want. I don't like to deny myself the things that I want. And I certainly don't want to deny myself for somebody that I don't love. You might deny yourself for the good of a spouse or child or friend. But how many of us would do it for somebody that we really don't like? Somebody that's sinned against us. Somebody that's in my little ledger of wrongs. Somebody who dares to deny my sovereignty. In short, we're not prone to be meek, are we? Pride is comfortable for us. It's easy. It's natural, even, in a manner of speaking. But the good news of Scripture is that it wasn't the disposition of Christ. Jesus Christ was not concerned with getting his own way and pleasing himself. If you turn back in your Bibles, one book to the book of Romans, chapter 15, we can see Paul explaining that principle. In Romans 14, he was talking about the weaker brother and the stronger brother and don't doing not do things that cause the weaker brother to stumble. Here in chapter 15, he's commending self-sacrifice, self-denial for the sake of the weaker brother. But take note of the motivation that he gives. In verse 1, we who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build himself up, to build him up, excuse me. And why, Paul, verse 3, for Christ did not please himself. But as it was written, the reproaches of those who, you, who reproached you fell on me. Why should I give up my rights for another, brother? Because that's what Christ did for me. Why should I suffer for the betterment of somebody else? Because that's what Christ did for us. Rather than being proud, Christ was selfless. Rather than seeking his own interest, Christ considered the interests of others ahead of himself. He was willing to give up so much in order that we might be forgiven. Paul says in another place, 2 Corinthians 8, Though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. That's self-sacrifice. How many of you have become poor for other people? I'm not saying that's a biblical command, but would we ever consider such a thing? 
see in that the magnitude of Christ's love and condescension, his meekness. Further, unlike me and you who tend to be so easily provoked, easily irritated by others, Christ was instead long-suffering and patient. He never flew off the handle, got snippy, never let the sins of those around him dictate his own behavior, and boy, did he have opportunity. Could you imagine if you were Jesus, perfectly sinless, standing before the Jews and Pilate in a mockery of a trial and being condemned by the creatures that you and the Father and the Spirit had breathed life into. And what did he say? He said, Father, not my will, but your will be done. He submitted to the plan of redemption because he was meek. Further, he wasn't like Moses. You remember Moses in the Old Testament was provoked by the Hebrews and he struck the rock twice in anger. He was judged for it. And Moses, Numbers 12, 3, was the meekest man on earth. If the meekest man on earth isn't enough to avoid irritability, what chance do you and I have? I'm out of luck. But Christ succeeded where men failed. Christ asked sinners to come to him. Matthew 11. Come to me all who are weary. Knowing full well what their coming to him would cost him. And yet he beckoned them to come. He didn't grow irritable, not getting his way. He gave up his way so that irritable people like me could be forgiven. His meekness, his lowliness of heart are specifically cited in that text as a reason for you to come to him. Unlike us who, because of our irritability, we repel people, Christ's genuine meekness draws people. But that's not all the good news. Pride tells a man he needs to keep a record of wrong and be resentful and be bitter and hold on to that grudge because that's just and right. But Christ is not so. He's the perfectly loving soul who instead of making a list forgave those who sought evil against him. He didn't grow bitter when he had his disciples who seem a little dim-witted Continue to fail him again and again. He had all the reason in the world to toss out Peter as a useless and failed leader. The one who denied him three times. And yet Christ forgave him and restored him. Not merely in his good graces, but to a position of prominence in ministry and service. He didn't hold a grudge and remain bitter against him. In fact, when Christ was on the cross, held in place by nails driven by his enemies, bleeding from the crown that was pressed upon his head and from the lash wounds on his back, being mocked by the people around him and having his last earthly possessions gambled for in front of him, what did he do? He could have seethed in bitterness. He could have said, let me take... Take note of all these things, because I got I got a date with you in, in a little bit. 
He said, Father, forgive them. He prayed mercy upon them. They don't know what they're doing, Father. Don't let their sins be counted against them. Grant them grace, Father. That meekness is, is unbelievable. No, no man is like this. No mere man. Christ's glory, his beauty is seen in many ways, but perhaps no perfection is as stunning as his meekness. He forgives those who deserve to die, and he dies for those whom he has forgiven. The author of all life gives up his life for those who despised his life. The selfless one in the place of the selfish like me and you. Do you see the love in our Savior? I hope that you see his love demonstrated and you behold him as lovely because of it. Satan can agree that Jesus was loving. He can agree that God is love and he hates God for it. Do you see the love of Christ and love him for it? I hope that you do. I hope that it compels you, it draws you in. That you will come and believe and be forgiven of your pride. Don't let your pride keep you as a barrier to come to this fountain of salvation. Don't let your arrogance blind you to the true beauty of Christ's meekness because he will return one day and he will judge the proud he will punish the arrogant they won't have a kingdom waiting for them like he's promised to his bride he will instead have eternal darkness so don't let that be your fate let your heart linger on the passages of scripture that describe the character, the meekness the love of Christ I hope that it is compelling to you. And I hope that it will help you become ever meek yourself. And that's, that's where I'm going to begin to end tonight, thinking about how we can grow in meekness. Meekness towards our fellow man. I've got eight quick observations, applications, I don't know what you call them, eight points at the end for you to listen to that I hope will be very practical. You may be saying, Pastor, this is all great. That sounds nice. So what do I do when I go home? How do I change? Well, number one, you need to know that meekness takes effort. Meekness takes effort. We are, nothing about meekness is innate for us. We are not born with meekness, no, nor do we get meekness simply by wanting it. I'm going to sit here and desire it really bad. No, we must work. Effort is required to achieve humility and love. You will not grow in humility simply by letting waves of sermons wash over your ears. As helpful as those can be, we must work. Number two, Follow the leader. Follow the leader. And I don't mean me. Part of being a Christian is that we ought to resemble Christ. And 
Christ says in Matthew 11, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. Learn from me. Christ is your example. He's more than your example, but he is no less than your example. We have an illustration to follow. What does humility and love and meekness look like? Read the Gospels. You see an example of perfection, worthy of our imitation, and he promises you this too. When you take that yoke and you learn from him, you will find rest for your souls. Number three, take good notes. Take good notes. That is, in your fight for meekness, take note of the occasions when you lose the battle. When you lose your meek disposition, when you get impatient, when you're angry, when you're irritable, when you're tempted to be be bitter and to not forgive someone, each of those moments provides a window into what's going on in your heart. Each one provides a hint as to what remaining idols are still lurking under the surface that need to be crucified. Take good notes and examine yourself in light of Scripture. Number four, fourth practical point, avoid proud fools. Avoid proud fools. Scripture compels us to flee the company of impatient, irritable, angry people, and they are, because their their disposition is infectious. It's like a plague. Proverbs 22 Verse 24 and 25, make no friendship with an angry man lest you learn his ways and your soul be ensnared. Young ones, you need to listen. Don't make friends with angry, unrepentant people. They need to know, we all need to know that bad company will corrupt good morals. Scripture recommends, more than that, it compels us to not make regular company with those whom the Bible declares to be fools. Indeed, if in God's providence you observe the foolishness of a proud man, of an unloving person, take note and see to it that you develop an aversion to that vicious behavior, that vice-like behavior. And hopefully by their negative example, learn to avoid it. Conversely, number five, seek out the meek. Seek out the meek. If you want to be meek, surround yourself with meek people. If good company can be corrupted by bad morals, then the converse can also be true. That our flaws and our fights against them can be greatly aided by the presence of godly saints around us. And so find people that are humble and be around them. Talk to them. Ask them. Learn from them. Ponder why it is that their presence is desirable. What is it about being around them that is attractive? Proverbs 16, 19 Better to be of a humble spirit with the meek than to divide the riches with the proud. Number six, dress for war. 
dress for war. Paul describes elsewhere in his letters the Christian life in terms of a spiritual battle. And so don't be deceived to think that your efforts to grow in meekness will not be assaulted and impeded by Satan and the demons. Your flesh is not your only enemy. And so when you get out of bed in the morning, when you get ready to go to work, go to school, then have it in your mind that you are going to battle. This is a war zone. Resolve that you will be meek, that you will not respond flying off the handle and be irritable. You'll not demand my way or the highway. But you'll be lovingly concerned with the good of others. And if things go well for you, you really nail it one day, don't let your armor down. You may be in worse off spot than if you really blew it. Thank God for the success and keep your armor on. If things don't go well and you really have a bad day, remember the shield of faith, which trusts that Christ was meek in your place. Remember the breastplate of righteousness that is his own righteousness. Don't become discouraged because meekness is a war that will not be won overnight. It's a lifelong battle. And the best of, state, of saints still battle pride at their deathbed. Number seven, pray yourself stable. Pray yourself stable. Let me ask you a question. Do people pray because they're meek and humble? Or are they meek and humble because they pray? I think the answer is yes. One of God's primary ways for us to grow in meekness is to be prayerful. A prayerful person knows that they are not enough and they need God's help. Prayer reinforces that in our souls. It's hard to be proud when you're on your knees. If you want to be a person who is stable in soul rather than irritable, unstable, then you need to be much in prayer. I see that in my own life. I find that in my own life, my emotional stability, my emotional, my soul's resiliency is directly tied to my prayer life. If I want to be stable and secure, having my faith firmly fixed on God, then I need prayer. And yet, when I find myself irritable, easily provoked, I can usually look back and see a waning prayer life. When I'm not praying, people say things and it instantly gets under my skin. Or they occupy space in my head without paying any rent. And I just chew on it. My heart is easily in turmoil when I don't pray. My mind is consumed with things that looking back are usually trivial. And yet I'm fixated on them. But when I'm prayerful, I'm, I find it easier to overlook offenses and my head is more focused on what Jesus says of me than the people around me. In short, my heart, when it's fixed on Christ, is more at peace rather than restlessness within me. Number eight. Always remember Jesus. Always remember Jesus. Read the Gospels frequently. Keep 
in your minds the meekness of Christ, especially when you mess up. And when you find yourself failing to be meek again and again, you're beset by the same unwillingness to forgive and bitterness and resentment, then remember Christ who came and forgave you when you were still an enemy. Christ commands us to forgive 77 times, which is to say as many as it takes. And would he ask us to do something that he would not do himself? Of course not. He will forgive and restore his bride as many times as it takes. Your failure in meekness is another opportunity for you to experience Christ's love for you. Always remember Jesus, that he died for the ungodly, the perfect one for the proud. He was lifted up on the cross so that you might be lifted up to heaven. That's the meekness of our King. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we ask that you would indeed make us like Christ. Help us to grow in humility, in love. Help us to treat others as more important than ourselves. Encourage us in our growth as we seek to battle for meekness, Lord. Let us not be content. Encourage us in this journey by the power of your Holy Spirit and by helping us reflect upon Christ and his great sacrifice. This we all pray for in Christ's name. Amen. We're going to stand and sing the